Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. A very warm welcome to everybody to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Once again, great to have with me Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We have a great conversation ahead, so let's get going. Elliot, I'll turn it to you. Great. Thank you so much, John. So, you know, I want to give a date for something that happened recently. It was on uh, April 30th, which is a Friday that evening. Earlier in the day, Twitter had reported earnings. I think we all know what's happened uh, since then. The stock hasn't exactly been a rocket ship, quite the contrary. Um, in the evening, I decided, since I've been pretty vocal about my position, um, that I would host a space and open up myself to questions and statements and any thoughts people had about the Twitter earnings. And I was joined by Compound248, who's also a fellow Twitter bull and has his own independent thoughts on the company, though we've spoken with one another uh, about how we approach the thesis. And for about an hour, we had handled a panel uh, moderating through spaces, uh, one by one, the opportunity for anyone out there to ask a question. And we had a couple hundred people in there, and it was a pretty neat, interesting experience. And being we had been doing so for an hour and it was near time to pick up my kids, I was moments away from ending the call when suddenly I had a request for the microphone from Ned Siegel. Now, you might not know the name. Maybe you do. Ned Siegel is the CFO of Twitter. And he's essentially, I think, you know, one of the more forward uh, corporate spokesmen on behalf of Twitter itself. And, you know, obviously I see that request and I'm like, okay. Not only am I giving Ned the mic, but hey, wifey, I think I need you to pick up the kids because I'm going to be staying around for a little while to see what happens next. And sure enough, you know, Ned graciously, um, and, you know, there was no conversation. There was no provocation. I never at any point, even like, whereas in the past I'd tweeted at Kayvon, like, hey, join my space, try to come in and, you know, got crickets for a response. I didn't even try to get Ned in there thinking, you know, I, he, he didn't even follow me before the event. I'm honestly not even sure how he found it. I labeled it uh, talking, you know, ha- cash tag uh, TWTR on Twitter um, just for fun. Perhaps he has some secret discoverability uh, page on Spaces. I doubt it yet, but um, sure enough, he found his way to the space and you know, when he requested the mic, I opened it up and I obviously welcomed him and, you know, started asking him some of the questions that I'd long had that I've never had the opportunity to directly uh, approach the company with in any way. And so, you know, I asked a couple questions, but then I opened it up. It's it's not my space in the sense that while I opened it, you know, there is nothing without many people in there. Um, and, you know, I put a tweet out saying, hey, Ned Siegel's in the space and he looks like he's doing Q&A. Come on in. And suddenly, I think the maximum number was like near 2000 people were in the space, were listening and were engaging and were talking with Ned for 
you know, he was there at about an hour at first when suddenly the space crashed. Now, interestingly, um, it kept going a little bit after it dropped on my phone. And so I restarted a space. And as soon as everyone else was out, they all came back in and Ned came back in and he continued the Q&A. And, you know, we gave him the opportunity to ask us, uh, Twitter shareholders and obviously power users. I think that goes without saying, but um, to ask us any question that he'd have, you know, about our experience, about the product and everything. Um, and I think it was a pretty amazing experience all around. It was amazing insofar as I think the average, uh, I, I think Twitter does a couple things really well around earnings, but something doesn't work out as well as it should. What they do really well is that they write a detailed shareholder letter that shares exactly what they uh, think is important from the quarter. And so they don't do the prepared remarks that many other companies do. I think that's incredibly valuable. And they jump into the Q&A. The problem is the Q&A is only as good as the quality of the analyst questions. And I think the average analyst covers Twitter from a very different perspective than would be beneficial to long-term shareholders. And this conversation, the nature of the questions, I thought were really outstanding. They covered a really wide range from the granular financial uh, questions on composition of COGS to the high-level strategic questions and to specific product questions, suggestions, advice. And, you know, it, it was a really good forum and there was a lot that I had uh, to take away from it, a lot that I could learn. And then when it all ended, you know, I really started thinking spaces as a forum in this way could truly democratize corporate access in a way that nothing else has done before. No one needs the intermediary of the sell side to make introductions to the management team and to create these conferences where, you know, the sell siders give their customers the opportunity to ask questions, but no one beyond that. Um, and the questions tend to be filtered. They tend to be asked from the lens of the analyst, first and foremost, what they're interested in and how they're thinking. And there's this situation where for sell siders to maintain the graces of companies, even when they're critical, even when they're not thinking uh, too optimistically about a company, um, they're expected to ask what I'd call like down the middle questions, not necessarily pure softballs, but very down the middle and not really get out there. And, you know, I'd say the quality of the questions to Ned in the space were not softballs, right? They were not easy questions. He was challenged on some of them, and he did not back away from a single question, answered everything except for the one that were, would have required like material non-public information. He obviously you know, pointed out as much, but still tried to answer as best he could without specifically addressing what uh, couldn't be said, which was giving a date on a feature ad. Um, but overall, you know, I think if other companies approached it this way, they'd have a much deeper more meaningful relationship with their shareholder base. They'd have a much different level of conversation. They'd be talking about topics that are, you know, far less geared toward figuring out exactly what next quarter was going to look like, because that's one of the main jobs the sell side has, right? People rely on them to give forecasts for the next quarter and for the next year, for better or worse. That's the nature of the beast. But when you engage with shareholders like this, um, the questions are going to you know, come from a different lens and from a different dimension. And so I think, you know, there's an opportunity. I put out a tweet afterwards saying, if any uh, other companies are out there listening, you know, feel free to reach out to me. And I'd be happy to, if I'm knowledgeable about the company, host a space myself. If not, 
find an investor I know and respect who is knowledgeable and have them host a space and do exactly this. And, you know, sure enough, I've had uh, two independent uh, outreaches from companies who I think are pretty thoughtful and, and interesting. Um, so I'm hopeful that this as a forum, spaces as a forum, where someone who's knowledgeable about the company could both ask some of their questions while stepping back and moderating like pretty neatly. You know, hopefully I did a good job of giving one person after another the opportunity for the mic without any one person capitalizing on the conversation, bringing new people in from the audience to ask questions and, you know, keep things focused along the way too. you know, make sure that that nothing gets uh, off track. Um, I, th I think that could be a great way for companies going forward. Um, and, you know, I think for uh, one of the better s silver linings of this COVID period has been how executives have found new ways to interact with their shareholders and prospective shareholders and to use Zoom and to use other new media uh, to have different kinds of conversations and uh, converse more frequently. Um, now, some people might push back more frequently. It isn't necessarily better, but Overall, I think, you know, transparency and detail and candor and uh, focus are quite helpful, uh, quite helpful from my perspective as a shareholder. Um, and, you know, all that being said, I, I, I really am hopeful that something like this could take off as one of the more important ways. I told Ned, if he ever wants to, after the next earnings report and thereafter, I'd be happy to do this again. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I've complained about is many management teams, you've heard this here on, on the podcast several times, many management teams do what's called a follow-up call after earnings, where they give a different analyst each quarter the opportunity to host them. And only people who are customers have access. And I've really hated that. I think it's terrible. This is a different, better way. And you know, I'm hopeful it takes off. Uh, John, I know you're in the space. Phil, I'm not 100% sure, but I was curious what you guys uh, think about this in general, what you thought uh, about Ned doing this, and where you think it might go for other companies out there. You mean I'm, John's in the space like he owns Twitter, or he's in the space like he was in the space with a capital S? <laughs> oh, he was in the space with a capital S. Was he? Uh, well, thanks for the invite. I didn't even know this was happening. So, Okay, no, so I, that, uh, that raises one of the most interesting points about it, right? There was no way to know it was happening because it was exactly, entirely yeah, was spontaneous, kidding, right? It was yeah, so no, spontaneous. I was, right. I was kidding. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sure John John was paying attention for his own interest, which makes sense. I would have been too. But um, look, I, I I couldn't agree more with what you said. I, I am as a point of clarification, I wonder though, are they gonna was there any transcript or anything they made available afterward? Or how how do you think you could go about that? Okay, now this was a tricky question because, um, you know, obviously while I was hosting it and it was spontaneous, like anytime I'd hear management talk, I'd want to be taking notes. And here I am moderating this thing. So I didn't take any notes or anything. And mm -hmm. I know Twitter itself keeps a transcript for 30 days. I tweeted out the next day, like, is, you know, Twitter, is there any way I could get this? Uh, because I'd love to have some notes. Um, and some of the people who are in the space who are anonymous fin Twitters, uh, took big issue and felt that was a violation of their privacy and their expectation going in. Oh, that's that's dumb. Yeah. Yeah. And where I did do this in the future, I think what I'd say in the beginning is be explicit. Like if there's a recording, uh, if you're not willing to be recorded or to have this be public, then, you know, don't speak. Right. Well, I, to your point, I mean, I think what makes it so special is it does 
open access and it, it hopefully creates a much better dialogue because I've, I've been up on the soapbox a million times. You guys are probably sick of it at this point, but the traditional quarterly conference call where you have the CEO read a bunch of fluff, you then have the CEO basically regurgitate the press release, and then you go into about 40 minutes of softball Q&A from nine different sell-side analysts is just a complete waste of everyone's time. So I, I couldn't agree more that that needs to go by the wayside. And, and so far, I mean, there, there's a tiny handful of companies that have kind of eschewed that entire fiasco, but you know, the, the more or the less renegade ones, you know, they'll kind of skip the reading of the, of the press release and go directly into Q and a, but it's still predominantly sell side analysts and it's still predominantly fluffy softball questions. So, you know, to get to something like this is a huge improvement. Um, you know, as you know, I think it's both to the company's enormous advantage to cultivate their shareholders and it's to the shareholders advantage to have access to that type of thing. So it's truly a win-win. I don't care which side of the political aisle you're on, so to speak. This is good for capitalism. It's good for corporate America. It's good for companies of all shapes and sizes, wherever they're domiciled. So this is a good thing. Um, I would love to see it done regularly. I'd love to see a transcript then 8K so that anyone who did miss it has access to it. And look, there's nothing stopping companies. I mean, there are a handful of companies that do this where they will take written questions either anonymously or with a name attached and respond to them in writing. That's another great way to do it, right? I mean, an open forum like this is good because it allows for a little more conversational give and take, and then you can have the company almost moderated if you do it in written format. But yeah, it just isn't, it isn't hard, right? I mean, you're, you're interacting with the people who actually own the stock. What, what could be more beneficial and simple than that? So I, I certainly hope this gets legs and keeps going. Yeah, I, I really loved uh, the format, and I think it's something that will uh, have much more uh, relevance in the future. Uh, I, I, I did feel like we were witnessing a moment in history, Elliot, when uh, you were doing that space, and then all of a sudden, uh, there's Ned Siegel, totally unexpected. Um, and, you know, I do believe in the space's product, and... Uh, and that it will grow tremendously. And I can absolutely see that companies will be using it for, you know, these kinds of conversations or other types of uh, conversations. And so, you know, this, this is probably one of those early experiences that if anyone ever writes the history of spaces, uh, this, this should be in it. So it was a, a, just a really, really uh, cool experience in that sense. And also, uh, what, what I felt was, it it felt even like more than just a Q and A of a C, uh, uh, you know, with a CFO. It almost felt like a joint brainstorm on what Twitter can do better, how it can create value. Um, so it had a little bit of a different quality from just kind of a a simple Q and A. And uh, I thought that was really, really special as well, because Ned was in there soliciting feedback and listening to people's thoughts on, on what Twitter can do better. I think he asked about if there's one, you know, improvement, uh, what would it be, and some other questions like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I and then finally, in terms of just kind of the uh, the etiquette of a space, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, that 
the recording would have been an issue for some folks. But I think over time, that probably gets established as a default. You know, you just have to expect that every space uh, can be recorded and transcribed. Everything that's said in there is public as it is. Um, and actually, I really look forward to the addition of recording and transcription features because uh, that's just going to create a, a long tail for the Spaces product and also potentially give it, uh, you know, a real leg in the race that, you know, is the podcasting game right now. Uh, so I feel like, you know, a lot is lost if you'd have it just be live, although some folks make arguments that that's, uh, that's the way it should be. But I feel like a, a lot more people can benefit if there is a recording. If the point is to learn and discuss and, and understand better what you own and where it's going and provide feedback to the company so the company itself can improve, why on earth wouldn't you want there to be a lasting record of this so you could measure that progress and share it more broadly and, and disseminate it. It's just that argument makes absolutely no sense to me that these people want to keep it under lock and key. Yeah, to be fair, I think the people who were uh, most resistant to this had joined the space earlier before Ned joined, before they knew it was going to be anything like this. Um, and, you know, one of them said specifically he works at a bank, is on uh, Twitter anonymously, and if his voice were out there, he could face trouble with compliance. Uh, that said, the space was entirely public. Literally anyone with a Twitter account could have joined. And I'd say if you fear your voice being out there in public, then that's a risk you have to be willing to take. And I would add this yeah, note. Exactly. I do know that some people listening to the space recorded it. Not myself. I did not know this till afterwards, but I saw a tweet that I was tagged on of someone who said that they recorded the space. And I heard in DM from someone else that they did. And so, you know, you don't even have control of whether it gets recorded or not as the host. Uh, so I think that's something that we're all going to have to contend with and have to understand, like, what the rules of engagement are and where it goes. But um, I do think there's like a beautiful synergy between spaces in the podcast world. I think inevitably the way it works is that a podcast could be uh, recorded via a space with live audience engagement. Like imagine us recording This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we have uh, our, some of our listeners in the space asking us questions. And the beauty of it is I don't think, you know, spaces are cannibalistic of the podcast experience. I think what they do is they inject spontaneity into the conversation itself and being able to record it. And hopefully, you know, down the line, we get one click where it'll cut out white noise and easy editing features um, and then push it out. I think the the um, recorded listening base would be 10x that of the live listening base, at least, right? There's some big multiple at work. But exactly. the beauty of it is that live will have cre created a kind of spontaneity that is even captured in beautiful form by the after the fact podcast. Yeah. Well, interesting. I hope you can follow up with that because it is the, the irony is not lost that it took something like Twitter's own CFO joining a, a live broadcast on their own platform to kind of get some momentum.
momentum here because there's nothing that would have stopped any company from doing anything like this for <laughs> a long, long time, right? And obviously, Berkshire has been doing it for decades in person and then for at least, what, four or five years now in live stream format. And we all know how effective that's that's been for them. But yeah, it, it just it, it seems like the most obvious thing. And sometimes it takes an accident like this to really build momentum. So I hope it takes off and keeps going. And one of the things that's cool, I mean, even with Berkshire, at least, like the questions are moderated and filtered. Um, and so you get a sense of like how wide the band of possible questions could be. And, you know, in the typical Q&A with analysts, I mean, most analysts ask about the same kinds of things each time. You have an idea of what each analyst is really concerned about or excited about. And their question is both designed to get on record having asked that, you know, air quote, interesting question uh, that they're always concerned with. Um, so there's like a degree to which there's not true spontaneity to the actual calls themselves and the variance of topics is pretty narrow. In this, like Ned had no clue what, yeah, I mean, he could have gotten in totally insane questions uh, for for all we know. Um Thankfully, if he does have, it again, I'm sure he will. <laughs> <laughs> hey, anything's possible on Twitter, right? Um, but, you know, I think the questions were really good, but some of them were pretty hard. Some of them were pretty challenging. And, you know, like John pointed out, some people were there to kind of give feedback, which I think was pretty cool because it was, uh, in that sense, far more conversational than just, you know, Q&A. I called it Ned being on the hot seat because it was, it was kind of hot insofar as, like, People could have said anything, um, could have asked him a whole lot of stuff about, um, you know, wh who, who the hell knows. But um, the range of topics I thought was really broad, much broader than you get on an earnings call, um, was both like wide and deep. And, and I thought that was uh, part of the beauty of it all. You know, I think you're going to need a good you're going to need a good moderator at some point. Right? I mean, I think we've we found that lesson out the hard way. Right. It used to be pretty annoying when it was truly an open forum. So you can maybe find some way to ask, you know, every other question or every third or fourth question comes from the audience at large. And then, you know, maybe it's you or maybe it's somebody at the company directly can kind of cut somebody off if they really veer into the ditch and get totally off topic or get something that's not healthy or productive or polite or whatever. So it could work. It seems obvious to me. Yeah. Only for about 10 days have the moderators had the tools to cut people off who are out of line. And I think that helps ensure like the incentive to go out of line is lesser now that the tools exist to quickly not just mute someone, but kick them off as a speaker. Right. Um, so I think that's really helpful. Um, I thought um, the moderation tools, this was my first time actually hosting a space. I'd been on a space and I thought they were really uh you know, helpful and gave me the right resources to be able to guide it and to be able to like step in. And I thought the people who engaged, um, a couple of whom I, you know, n know in the Twitter sense of no, and many of whom I really had never like even seen the handles or recognized them at all. So I think, you know, I, I don't know how to say exactly why it happened, but it attracted the right kinds of people too. Yeah, I was going to say on, on that, um, you know, Phil, you make a good point that the moderation is important and it'll only get more important if this becomes a, you know, a, a more prominent venue for uh, companies. And, and that's where, you know, having someone like Elliot um, host this 
is is key because Elliot, you do have a certain kind of following, and that already kind of elevates, I think, the level of the discussion. Now, you know, there can always be stray kind of people in the audience who are gonna just ask a question that's totally out of place but then you know that's that's the price of having that kind of access and you 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 can cut off that person as we said uh if if needed if a question is really inappropriate um but i i do believe if you have a host whose own following is such that um there's already good discussion going on around the company uh, that's being, you know, featured. That um, you are creating a much more valuable format than the one that you know you you guys mentioned or, or Elliot you talked about. Basically, uh, filtered question format where you know you can ask a question, but if it's not within the range, even if it's a, a good question, maybe it's just a bit too tough, it doesn't get asked, and here it would. Uh, so we'll, we'll just have to see that how this develops, but I do think it, it, yeah, it democratizes access in a big way. I mean, I felt like when Ned was on that uh, space, it was almost like Twitter was a micro cap, you know, you're talking to one of the main guys at the company in a kind of pretty casual way about some big things. And, uh, it really did did make Twitter feel like a very, very accessible management team. Yeah, it really did. And an open-minded one too, which is interesting. Like you don't always hear that. Um, and, you know, one of the critiques is people weren't so sure they've been listening to their users and their power users and their shareholders. And I think it's pretty clear that they are and that it's different. And I'd add, I think you made a lot of good points. One, uh, You know, this is a new use case of spaces. And that's one of the things that's so exciting to me about it. Like, um, there's this concept called emergent phenomenon. And I think as far as Twitter has been concerned, you know, for about, uh, nearly for basically a decade, it's been a known entity. Like we know the ways you could use Twitter and engage in Twitter every once in a while. There's like maybe one or two interesting wrinkles to how people deploy these tactics and strategies. But with spaces, I think we really don't even know all the different use cases that people are going to have. And I think, um, having been part, like you said, it's historic, like having been part spontaneously of the first like true, um, I, I'd call it like shareholder democracy in uh, social media audio form. I mean, it's pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. Wouldn't you agree, though, for it to really have that full effect, you need to make it fully available and not just have been following you or John or stumble into this thing, right? So why not just make it accessible to all and, and put it up and, and, and give advance notice of it and make a transcript available, right? Seems pretty Well, seems yeah, pretty straightforward. I mean, the challenging part for that is I don't know why Ned would have ever like listened to me and accepted a request to do something like that, right? To be like, hey, let's, uh, you know, pick no, 5 p.m. Sure. on the day of earnings for, uh, or the day after earnings for, for a call. But, um, but like I, you I said, agree. they do that, or most most companies do that with a sell side analyst or three, you know, and rotate around or whatever, and it's ridiculous. And so why not just do this instead? And look, so if I, and again, I I don't know that this, I, I I think there's some lawyers that would have some issues with this, or at least get nervous with this, and want to do it in more of a, 
standardized kind of format, right? Where it's not you as the moderator, it's somebody from the company and whatever. It doesn't have to change the substance of what happened or what could happen, right? So again, I just, it, it seems like so easy and obvious to just do this. You know, it doesn't have to be all the time. You do it once a quarter or once or twice a year. It, it's just so easy and you do it, you know, the company hosts it and you put it out there and anybody can join. It doesn't have to be spaces. It could be hosted on any one of a number of uh, different platforms, right? It, it should be pretty straightforward. Absolutely. And they are adding scheduling capabilities and the tools to kind of do everything you uh, suggested above and beyond how it was done are going to be there pretty shortly. Um, and, you know, I think it would be helpful if there could be more than one host and approach moderation in a more sophisticated fashion and, you know, have someone in a side room like screen uh, certain callers, perhaps for just to make sure that they're going to not uh, break certain codes of decorum, but still right. allow all questions, right? Um, yeah, no, I, exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I like the fact that it's just an emergent phenomenon and we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Yeah, and, sure. You don't know how it's going. One other thing that's worth pointing out too is I think you've done something good and positive for the company. And so this is a good example of what I call being a helpful shareholder, right? I mean, just like I did or tried to do with that owner's manual project I talked about a while ago, you know, went back to 2018, 2019, and unfortunately got kind of stalled in the ninth inning there because of the pandemic. But, you know, th this is something where, you know, you kind of had this opportunity and you ran with it. And I think the company's better off for it and hopefully they continue to run with it. And this is a great example where shareholders can help reinforce the companies that they invest in. It's awesome. Well, you're giving me a little too much credit because really all I thought I was, I was doing was like, I thought I'd just open the space to face questions about like how stupid I am <laughs> on a day that yeah, it wasn't well, going exactly great. That's um, worth that's worthwhile in its own right. So, you know, you get lucky and you take advantage of it. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope for more opportunities like this because, um, you know, I think it was, uh, I, I, I think a lot of people, even skeptics of the company, had deep respect for the way Ned stood up there and faced questions and for how even after it crashed, he came right back in. And, you know, I, I, I told him quite bluntly, he did not have to apologize for that. Like, I think a company is allowed to have a product that's still in beta and be experimental. And honestly, I don't know if it crashed because spaces crashed or because my phone sucks. Like, who the hell knows? But he came right back in and faced uh, the music and, you know, was, was really gracious about it. So, um, you know, I feel lucky and grateful for having had the opportunity to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And it's encouraging on their end too, that, that the CFO is willing to do that, right. To try to connect with people and not just hide in his office. I mean, it's a good sign on their end as well. Absolutely. And that was on a Friday evening, by the way. So not, not, not just any day of the week. Um, Great. Well, let's move on to our second topic. Uh, Phil, over to you. Yeah, thanks, John. So I think we'll we'll continue at least partially in the theme with the accessibility advantages of Twitter. And then I'll follow up with some things I hate about Twitter, I guess, maybe. But um, Elliot and I, uh, I forget where it even started. I think Elliot replied about something from when we distributed the podcast last week and Michael Mobison jumped in and clarified some of the discussion we were having last week about uncertainty versus risk. And I had forgotten where uh, Elliot was referring to it. And I think, Elliot, wasn't it um, More Than You Know? Was that the book where it was featured? 
Exactly right. And anyone yeah. new to investing, go get that book because it's awesome or old to investing. Yeah. No, for sure. So I, you know, I've, I've told plenty of people this before. I mean, in, in the MBA class that I teach, I actually use a lot of Mobison's white papers uh, because they're kind of, you know, not that MBA students can't read academic papers, but I don't get as much utility personally out of them as I do things that are written in, in plain English and can actually be applied. So I think both his books and his white papers, which are all uh, worth, you know, a thousand times what you'd have to pay to acquire them. And then the time you'd need to invest them to read them, I just couldn't recommend them anymore. So I uh, encourage everybody to follow up with that. But anyway, what's cool is he jumped in and, and clarified and amplified what we were talking about. And, and the concept actually dates to uh, a University of Chicago economist named Frank Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, um, who died in, in the early 70s. But he distinguished risk and uncertainty um, in a 1921 piece that he wrote called Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit. And so that's turned into this concept of and uncertainty. And there he says, uncertainty must be taken in a sense as radically distinct from the familiar notion of risk from where it's never really been properly separated. And so the, the essential fact is that risk means in some cases a quantity susceptible of measurement, meaning it can be measured, while at other times risk is something distinctly not that it's something totally different and that there are these big far reaching and crucial differences in the in the two phenomena depending which of the two is really present and operating so it will appear that the measurable uncertainty or risk proper capital r risk you know beta however you want to define it um, is so far different from an unmeasurable one that it is in fact not an uncertainty at all so i think there what he's what he's trying to say is and this is the distinction elliot was trying to make um, last week is you just have to be really uh, certain of which of the two you're dealing with, right? And it kind of gets into the famous thing that you know people love to make fun of, but the quadrant of known knowns, known unknowns, unknown knowns. You know, and so it's like, do you know what you're dealing with? Do you know the distribution? Do you know what's out there? Can you actually measure it? Can you put your arms around it or not? And the the difference between the two is is really uh, crucial, obviously, to say the least. So, uh, would encourage everybody to follow up on that from last week and go read uh, the original work or more than you know, Google it. There's there's plenty of good stuff out there. So, um, And one thing I wanted to talk about this week that I thought was really interesting, probably the, the main takeaway I guess I had from the Berkshire meeting, which was certainly not the fact that Greg Abel is going to be the next CEO or would be the next CEO tomorrow if things took over. That was probably the least surprising news of all time, but still generated headlines and it wasn't, you know, all the usual stuff. I thought there was just a really interesting thought experiment, which Buffett's so good at, where he posted a list of the top 20 companies in the world by market cap in 1989. And then he posted a list of the top 20 today. And so for anybody who didn't see this, you know, the the uh, replay is up and available. Yahoo Finance streamed it and then the replay is up there and you can find uh, everything there. But so in in the spring of 1989, um, the top 20 companies in the world included, uh, I think there were 13 of the top 20 were in Japan. This was probably pretty darn close to the very peak of the Japanese uh, equity market and real estate bubble. So Japan had the top four, Industrial Bank of Japan, Sumitomo Bank, Fuji Bank, and Daiichi uh, were the top four. Uh, in 1989 dollars, ranging from 104 billion at the top to 64 billion there. So they had the top four, they had five of the top seven, they had seven of the top 10, and 13 of the top 20. 
you know, which is pretty stunning for an island nation that was obviously an economic power, but not all that big in the grand scheme of the world, um, you know, just 32 years ago. And so what's Buffett's point there, and there are only six U.S. companies, by the way, um, but Buffett's point here was that if you look forward to today, not a single one of those 20 companies is still on the list, not one. And so how many people would be willing to forecast the next 30 or 32 years, right? And so I ran some, some interesting numbers here, and this is all from Bloomberg data. So if there's any mistakes in the math, it's, it's my stupidity or mistake. So I apologize for that in advance, but I did double check these. So hopefully they're correct. Um, so the, the number one market cap back then, uh, like I said, was Industrial Bank of Japan, 104 billion. These are nominal dollars. Number one today is uh, Apple at a little over 2 trillion. That's about a 10.5% compound annual return. Uh, number 20 to number 20. So uh, in 1989, the number 20 market cap was actually Merck. Obviously, Merck still exists. It's just not in the top 20 anymore. That was a $30 billion uh, market cap. And today it's LVMH and it's a $336 billion. And again, we're converting, we're doing all sorts of, you know, kind of variables. We're holding constant like currencies and converting them back and forth, et cetera. But that in, in simple US dollars across that time horizon, uh, that's a much lower return. It's only about 8%, 8.4% compound annual return from the number 20 position to the number 20 position. Like I said, none of those top 20 continued on in the in the top 20 today. So if we go back to 1989, um, what did Apple do over that time period? I think it IPO'd 1980, if I remember right, something around there. Um, but from 1989, so April of 1989 through March of 2021, where Apple ended up with a 20.1 almost trillion dollar market cap, um, Apple's total return was over 21.2% a year. That's a total return from... March of 89 or April of 89 to March of 2021. Pretty astounding, right? So if you think, and and, and by the way, for it, it 2 trillion today, you know, it's about 9%, let's say, um, of US GDP. It's obviously not just a US company, but we'll use that for comparison's sake. Um, and so if you think US GDP for the next 30 years grows at 2%, which would be a pretty awesome result, we might get up to something like 40 trillion. Um, 30 years from now, I picked 30 years instead of 32, just to make it a little, little easier. So 40 trillion uh, in nominal GDP 30 years from now, if Apple kept that same constant ratio of a market valuation of almost of 9% of GDP in, in 30 years, it'd be worth about 3.7 trillion, which is again, a 2% compound return, quite a bit less than what it's done before. So with 3.7 trillion, uh, be good enough to sustain it in the, in the top 20 and 30 years from now? I kind of doubt it, uh, to say the least. And, and if you want to think that it keeps up like anything it's done in the past, um, if you think Apple were to grow 10%, which is you know roughly what the number one did to retain the number one position uh, over the last 32 years. So if Apple were to grow at a 10% compound rate over the next 30 years, the ending market cap would be almost $36 trillion. So again, it would be almost as big as the entire GDP of the U.S. at that point. Seems pretty unlikely. Uh, let's say instead of the 8% in change result that got you from number 20 to number 20 over the 32 years in the Buffett experiment, let's say you step all the way back to a 6% return, which again, seems like a pretty 
healthy, optimistic level for kind of a base return, a, you know, kind of a mid-level return and index return over the next 30 years. Again, I think we should all be pretty darn happy with 2% GDP growth and, and 6% as an index return in the equity markets. But at that level, uh, Apple would grow to be almost a $12 trillion market cap at the end of those 30 years. And again, if uh, GDP is a little under 40, you know, its, it's share of, of GDP is, is its own market cap would have gone up pretty considerably. So again, you know, we'll see, right? I mean, I, I know how I'd bet on that. It seems pretty unlikely to me. Um, and again, to, to show just how astonishing that is, LVMH is now the number 20 company on the list, $336 billion market cap, tremendous company, uh, one of the best operators and underrated capital allocators of all time running the show there. And over the 32 years to get to this point, uh, it's only compounded at 14% a year. I say only in air quotes. That's that's pretty unbelievably impressive. Shockingly enough, the S&P has actually done double digits. It's almost 11% over that period. So it shows you how absolutely massive the advantage is when you have a small edge over that that really compounds over three decades. It's just truly enormous. So uh, anyway, those numbers I thought were just kind of fun food for thought. But the point of the game was, do you think any of these 20 companies on the list? So we have... Uh, three from China, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 from the US. Uh, one from Korea, Samsung, one from Taiwan, Taiwan Semiconductor, and then Saudi Aramco's number two. So you have Apple at number one, Microsoft at number three, Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook, four, five, six, and then Tencent, China. Tesla, Alibaba, Berkshire Hathaway itself, right there in the middle of the pack. Uh, Visa, JP Morgan, Johnson & Johnson, Samsung, Kuechao Mutai, Walmart, MasterCard, United Health, and LVMH rounding out the list. So what do you guys think? I'll, I'll weigh in at the end, but I'm curious, John and Elliot, what you guys think. Will any of these 20 still be on the list 30 or 32 years from now? And if so, which ones? So, I mean... I kind of sense some irony in Berkshire owning a meaningful chunk of the world's most valuable company by market cap. <laughs> That's, that is true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, pointing this out, because I think there was a point in it, right? Um, which is, it's not good to own the world's most valuable companies by market cap. Um, I think there's something when you look through the list of back then the, that's quite a bit different. And so even forget, even leaving out the fact that like Exxon's a commodity company, G is a conglomerate, IBM is technology. A lot of the companies um, were banks. Like a lot of them, over half the companies were banks. Of the top five, four of them were banks. And, you know, I, it's not just interest rates, but there's something fundamentally different about that business. So um, to the extent that the list in 89 was very concentrated with one sector, a very important financial sector, a, a very important sector for the economy. Today's list, I think, is, you know, if you want to paint it with one brush, you could say technology, but it's way more diverse. And so, God, I mean, the famous last words, this time is different, but I really do feel like a lot of these companies are different in nature. And where I'd say I think um, changes will come 30 years forward, I don't think it's quite as much going to be because the companies that by and large populate the list are doomed to some uh, harsh fate. 
but rather I think it's that we don't know which emergent companies are going to be massive 30 years from now and which companies will have like increasing relevance. So I'd be more willing to bet on 30 years forward having a new crop of really powerful extreme winners than I would betting on like the fall or decline of any of these companies. Um, though maybe if I were to put myself out there, um, I think in some ways, you know, of of at least the big tech companies in the U.S., um, Apple seemingly has a very strong position, but I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong because I use an Android phone, but I think they are a little more vulnerable than others um, because, uh, you know, it's it, they're, they're, they locked in their ecosystem based on the phone. But what if the phone is no longer like the key platform through which you connect to everything? Who the hell knows? I'm just thinking off the top of my head what, what things might look like 30 years forward. Um, but at the end of the day, they have to win every hardware cycle to have a right to uh, lock you in on the software side. And that could could be challenging. Um, so, yeah, those are some top of mind thoughts. Uh, I, I guess I'm somewhat punting, but that's you're, it. You're punting then. No, no, uh, no prognostication on how many of the 20 will still be in the 20, 30 years from now. You don't have to. I'm just putting you on the spot to try to. Sure. I mean, so given I do believe there's a great degree of inertia for these companies, for many of them, and I think a lot of them, you know, and and I'm not willing to bet on these companies falling. I'm more willing to bet on the field rising. Let's call it, I'd say, 10 of them. Let's go 15 of them fall out for various reasons. Interesting. Okay. John, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I'll say that none of them will be on the list in 30 years. Um, but I'll just kind of go back a little bit. I, I, I think this chart or this table is not the most instructive to make that point because of just the extreme nature of the Japan bubble in 1989. I'd be curious what this comparison would look like if you excluded Japanese companies in 89 and, you know, whatever other companies would kind of slip into the 20 if there are some that are now on the top 20 list. Um, that, that would be interesting because, you know, if you are in 1989 and you see 13 Japanese companies of the 20, you know, how could you not think that that's unsustainable? I mean, you know, it's not like Japan won World War II or had some great uh, demographic trends or anything. Um, it clearly was just a reflection of an, of an extreme bubble. So, you know, that's that point. The second point is that, you know, this table reflects um, inflation, uh, even if you want to say just in asset prices, but inflation nonetheless. I mean, a 30 billion market cap was a top 20 company in the world back then now you've got you know a snowflake is you know 30 billion or something like that and has almost no uh no profits uh, to speak of um so so that's that's a that's a point and if you take that point uh, a little bit further you can actually you know you, you can say that none of the top 20 companies from 1989 
necessarily had to be terrible investments because, look, even in the extreme case, if you take the most highly valued company, Industrial Bank of Japan, at $104 billion, that stock could have tripled and it wouldn't be on the list anymore. And, you know, if you take Merck, the, the, you know, which was a $30 billion market cap, it could have been a 10-bagger and it wouldn't be on the list anymore. So the point that somehow it's horrible to invest in the top 20 companies on the list is just a bad point to make, you know, because, yeah, I mean, you look at the, the list in 1989, you could take literally the last five companies on the list, they all could have been 10-baggers and they wouldn't be on the list uh, of today. Um, so, but the other the other thing is, you know, this list is a pretty crude measurement because it doesn't include dividends um, or, yeah, buybacks, I guess, also not. Um, no, it's market cap. So it's, it's, you're right. It's not a total return calculation. Yeah. So it's just, I, I think it's just I market saw, cap as a point in time. Yeah. I think I saw someone on Twitter make the point that Philip Morris has actually had a really good total return oh, yeah. over that yeah. period. Um, so, you know, that just goes back to that point that let's say Facebook could be a great investment over the next 30 years, even though it might no longer be on the top 20 list. Um, you know, and, and why do I say none of these companies will be on the list? Well, I think as you reach a certain size, your um, dividend payout has to go up because you just cannot reinvest uh, all your uh, cash. So basically, that's not reflected in this list. Um and then I can see some companies just existing in a different form um, in 30 years. Maybe there'll be not just one company, but two or three or four companies. Um, you know, Saudi Aramco, I just think is a reflection of the past. And unless they do something unbelievable in terms of investing in emerging uh, energy technologies, um, I don't see them on the list or anywhere near the list in uh, 30 years from now. Um, but yeah, as, as, as Elliot said, I agree that basically there will be just new companies. You know, we're talking about only 20 companies in the world here. Um, and I think there will be many very valuable companies created over the next 30 years. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I agree with a lot of your your points there. I, I don't want to overstate the case of what this was, right? I mean, it's an arbitrary point in time, obviously. Uh, I, I, I do think it wasn't entirely unintentional, right? I think Buffett probably picked the Japanese bubble at that for a reason, right? And then look, I think if you go back and look at the valuations put on most, if not every one of those Japanese companies, they were so embarrassingly high that they were almost set up for failure. And if you want to talk about bubbles and crazy valuations, I mean, you should really go back and have a look at that stuff. It was truly mind-blowing how expensive Japanese assets of almost all kinds were uh, in that period. So you're right. I mean, but I think that also is is kind of the point, right? That that valuation does matter. And if things get a little out of hand, it can really be painful. Your, your point as well is that, uh, you know, total return matters and you can still get a perfectly good return uh, but likewise, I mean, trees don't grow to the sky, which to me is the is the real takeaway here. So, 
when your growth starts to level off, you can still get a good result as an investor, but it's going to have to change, right? It's not going to be from just price appreciation and growth. It's going to have to come in other forms uh, like payouts and, and basically, you know, partial liquidations of the company because it just doesn't work otherwise. And so, but again, I, I mean, and to your point, Ellie, obviously there's a lot of financial companies on here. Um, and that reflected an era that that was unique to that moment. That's true of everything. A lot of the companies today look far more, frankly, impressive, uh, far more diversified, far more durable. Um, so, but you know, again, that's why I didn't say this company sucks or that company's doomed to failure. I don't feel that way at all. I just think it's going to be pretty instructive if you know the the market cap of Apple goes up two percent a year for the next 30 years, I mean, that's going to end up with a $4 trillion company at the end of that, right? That's not like the company's gone away and died. Um, that's that's pretty damn impressive. But I think if you were to ask most people today, uh, would you like to own Apple for the next 30 years at 2% a year? They'd throw up. <laughs> that's not what they're expecting and what they're in for, but that could well be the most likely outcome. So, so let me ask a, I just, a I, different kind of question for you here, because it's one of the things I think of when I look at this list, right? So let's say 30 years forward, Waymo is on the list, but Google's not. Does yeah, that mean Google question. is on the list or are they not? Yeah, that's right? a good question. Yeah, Amazon, AWS, I, right? You know, yeah. you could go down the list and find more than, you know, a handful of examples where you could see some degree of uh, like, I don't know, separation happening. And sure. uh, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I actually don't think as I look at the list from 1989 doesn't look like a single one of them at least out of the handful that i'm familiar with actually did go through any sort of breakup right i mean ge was the ultimate conglomerate and it kept right on conglomerating until it blew itself up right well I mean, there's some like pieces a, that are that have been siphoned off at various well, they points have, but i mean it, they, they've definitely been siphoned off but they weren't like siphoned off from a point of strength let's put it that way right i mean it's not like they got rid of any of the industrial businesses or Genworth or anything like that because things were going so well that they just wanted their yep. freedom. So I mean again like the Liberty guys always talk about the the total return if you had owned Liberty Media and now it's splintered into however many individual tickers there are that you'd have to to count. Well it's that's also good point, funny though. that's where I think if I were uh, I was gonna say it's funny to look at AT&T because AT&T is a really big company today and yet it is actually not AT&T itself from 1989. <laughs> So there's stuff like that right. too. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and I, and you know, like you said, Exxon, then or Saudi Aramco today, not not really, uh, you know, fair fights in, in that regard. I guess it's kind of a single bet that's uh, beyond the pale. Uh, you know, IBM back then was probably is probably more instructive, right? I mean, IBM hasn't gone away. It's certainly struggled a little bit, but you know, owning IBM from then till now is certainly better than owning cash or some crappy business or something, right? So I, I think that's instructive. And so anyway, to to get to the punchline, I guess, I mean, I, I'm probably between the two of you. If I had to pick one of you, I'd go with John and say zero. I think that's probably closer to the base rate and reality and the way to bet. I mean, if I could do this across, uh, which somebody did, by the way, Tom Lipte of, of the Good Judgment Project put this up and, and ran a poll and it's a cool service on maybe maybe.com. It's kind of a cool polling service. And, and so you can actually make a distribution of bets instead of a single yes, no bet or a single number. Um, but yeah, I think the most likely number is probably something between zero and two. Uh, so if I had to put an over under on it, I'd probably either put it at 
0.5 or one and a half or something like that, where I would be indifferent. Um, I'd probably take the under on one and a half. Um, but I, you know, if I were to, if I were to pick one, you know, it'd probably be something like Amazon or Alphabet where they've just proven this amazing protein ability to, uh, ex- expand in new markets and keep reinventing themselves and where they just dominate certain things like you can't believe, which should give them a pretty good toehold for you'd hope at least the next five, 10, 15 years gets you at least halfway home maybe. Uh, so that, that would be my bet. And I certainly, uh, wouldn't want to bet on some other things, but, uh, you know, no point in, in rooting for failure. I just think that it's, it's hard, right? It's a really high bar. It's, it's going to be an interesting, interesting period. There's going to be things 30 years from now that are just impossible to predict from this, from this vantage point. Yeah. And I said zero kind of to be a little provocative. I can definitely see that maybe one or two can, can still be on the list. <laughs> so I guess we're, yeah, it is. I, I agree, but I, it'd be interesting, right? I bet if you put this out and in particular, if you put this out to people that had either some sort of affinity for the product or were shareholders, of Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Tesla, for sure, <laughs> or even Visa. Uh, you know, I bet a lot of them would say, oh, well, of course, these are still going to be in the top 20 <laughs> 30 years from now, right? I, I just, I don't think that's, I don't think it's likely or a foregone conclusion, that's for sure. And well, here's finally, a question. Oh, go ahead, John. Just kind of a, a question for you guys. Um, any companies that you know, of today that you could see be on the list in 30 years. That was exactly where I was going to go. I'm like, you know, you could look at who's on the outside looking in and think about ones that very well could usurp those at the bottom. So like, at least on the list that I'm looking at, uh, NVIDIA had recently replaced MasterCard. Um, So you went from having both Visa and MasterCard up there, but then you go a little down uh, on the outside looking in um, you see like Walt Disney, PayPal, a company like uh, ASML, um, extremely important, global, fantastic companies um, could could definitely make the case for why they get there. You go a little farther down, someone like Netflix, global, extremely ambitious. Um, you know, I think uh, those kinds of companies uh, make a compelling case. Um, you know, it's hard to think about those who are on like the way outside looking in. Um, but those would be the obvious candidates for me that are like pretty close and that have a reason, um, for higher aspirations. But since we are talking 30 years down the line, um, and while I think it might be a little ahead of itself, uh, near term, um, in 30 years time, I could see a company like Shopify, uh, making the case for why, um, you know, they're, they're up there and worthy. Um, so yeah, those are, those are a few ideas that come to mind pretty quickly, but, um, yeah, I think that's a really well, thanks, good question. Thanks for ruining what I was going to talk about next week. Cause that was going to be my whole 2.0 take on this for next week's, uh, podcast, but no, it's a great, it's a great question. I, I, without having done a ton of work as to who's in the right size and in the right categories, I think you're right. Uh, like the right way to frame it is, um, who's small enough now, but has already achieved some sort of escape velocity in the markets they're in, but isn't so big that they're going to be weighed down by the anchor of size. Because to me, that's the the big thing here, right? I mean, it's it's not that Berkshire Hathaway is going to, it's not that Berkshire Hathaway's done poorly for the last 10 years, but they would have, with the same people 
the same everything in place would have done way big, way better had they just been way smaller at the beginning of it, right? I mean, size is an anchor on performance. So you have to think about who's at the right size now to really vault their way into the top and isn't going to be weighed down by the, the anchor of size and the bureaucracy that comes with it. So, and then I think you need to, as you mentioned, Elliot, you know, kind of a global company or a company that plays in a market that's so big that it can really produce um, some big winners. So, you know, I think one of the best candidates I could think of would maybe somebody like Stripe, um, where, you know, payments is an enormous industry. I mean, you, you kind of, you rightly point out there were a ton of banks back then, but there's still Visa, not a bank, but a payments company, Visa, MasterCard, and JP Morgan on this list. Um, and PayPal's just know, outside, not far. And PayPal's just outside, right? And so, and again, I don't want to get into the whole fiat currency and crypto stuff, but um, you know, somebody like Stripe, where if they could really keep going with what they've started, and the you know the founders are very young, and will still certainly be in their prime of their careers thirty years from now. I mean, that that would seem like a good one for me. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, Phil, <clears throat> kind of eyeing Visa and MasterCard, uh, where I feel like Stripe uh, could actually be the next uh, generation here. But let's uh, let's treat this as a preview of uh, next week's uh, conversation then. Yeah, maybe I'll tweak the list so we take out the Japanese bubble. Maybe I could roll it forward a couple of years or take out the Japanese financial group. And then, yeah, we'll... we'll revisit it it's cool right it really is and we could revisit uh some more ideas for who will emerge in the uh top 20 30 years forward i like it yeah and and also something to think about maybe for next week is whether you know you guys think that a 30 year time time span going forward will actually be more like a 50 year time span looking back just because of how quickly change is happening in the world. Maybe we should just, you know, talk about that as well a, a little bit next week. I like that idea a lot. Like, has change accelerated? Is this permanent or is it temporal? Like, there are a lot of interesting directions you could go with that from our vantage point right now. Well, terrific. I, I think we got our audience for next week. So, Thank you, guys. Uh, it was a good one. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, talk to you all next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.